So welcome to 2020. This is a co-working edition. It's where we ask 20 questions in 20-ish minutes. Jamie, we generally go about 25, 30 minutes because my guests generally have a, an, an abundance of valuable information to share with our, our listeners. Um, the intention is to leave people feeling uplifted, inspired, and certainly informed. So I'm Lisa Skyhane. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Primary, which is a conscious co-working company with two beautiful spaces in Manhattan. I'm also a master networker. I'm a charitable corn cookbook author uh, also. I corn cookbook that. called I Love Corn. <laughs> you can buy it on Amazon. I'm also a mother. Um, Henry and Hawk are four and two and a half. So in this edition of 20 and 20, during the month of June, I'm connecting with industry experts, operators, vendors, and of course, most importantly, our clients. There's a lot of co-working members that are going to be joining me as well. And we're going to learn how together we're going to weather this storm. Co-working has been around for over a decade. Executive suites have existed for 30 plus years or so. Obviously, the office space and uh, real estate industry, like many industries, has really been hit incredibly hard during this pandemic. And I certainly believe, and I know you do too, and I think Industrious is incredibly well positioned to do well and ultimately thrive. Um, and I think that certainly everyone, large companies and small companies are gonna be wanting flexible terms more than ever as we pull through this time. Um, there's certainly, I think, no better person to speak about this than my guest today, Jamie Hodari. So Jamie Hodari is, this, is the CEO and co-founder of Industrious, which is the largest premium workspace provider in the US. You have 90 plus locations in 45 cities. You want to correct me on that? No, I think that's right. Okay, I good. Think that's right. Industrious has pioneered the evolution from the landlord partnerships or, or two landlord partnerships from the more traditional leases, um, which is also, I think, something that positions you well for success, you know, in this time. Um, you are a smarty. I'm going to leave it at that. You, you've studied at Columbia, Harvard, and Yale. Um, you were the CEO and co-founder of a company called Kepler Kigali. What was that business? Uh, that was a, essentially like a blended learning university in, in Rwanda, um, where people would watch their lectures at, at home at night, and then they would come in and, and do facilitated classes during the day. Um, okay. And I think in this moment, when everyone's trying to figure out what to do with higher education in the US, mm -hmm. uh, like, I think it's actually, I would love to go back to education one day and try to do something like that here in the US. Is it something that you could incorporate into what you're doing with Industrious? Never know. I push for it over the years. I feel like everyone else at Industrious thinks it's like my pet obsession, but maybe <laughs> I'll get, you know, a little more traction now. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, well, so thank you again for agreeing to take this interview with me. You know, earlier this week, obviously, and, and over the last two weeks with the the outrage, um, you know, of, of anger and upset over our continued um, uh, systematic injustice, racial injustices that are running rampant and prevalent in our country. Uh, we, we had Blackout Tuesday earlier this week, and I took a moment to pause to say, do I really want to go forward with these interviews? And I thought, let me use the platform as a way to lean into these conversations, which I think for a lot of white people, if I can speak on behalf of white people, is, it can be uncomfortable. But I think that leaning into education, and you alluded to that in one of your posts you put up on LinkedIn, leaning in, listening, asking questions is going to be a big part of how we can be part of the solution in, in, in moving forward. And so my question to you uh, for this interview is, as a business owner, what do you think that we can or should be doing as, to be part of the solution um, for equality and justice for the black community in our country right now? 
It's a big question to start with. <laughs> Take I mean, a deep breath with uh, it. Yeah. I think probably for most businesses, it's there's there is what's going on at home, meaning internally within your business, and then and then how do you interact with the outside world? And I suspect there are very few American businesses that don't have a long way to go on both making the the team and 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 sort of the the people that comprise the business uh, a more diverse group of people and have more representation for marginalized communities and making it a more inclusive, welcoming place to work from people from marginalized communities. And my sense is more so than donations, more so than other things, that is the number one way most businesses can have an impact. And so if this moment causes more, more reflection and more action on the DNI front internally, I suspect for, for most companies, you know, if you sell ice cream or you're a co-working company or et cetera, there is a nexus with systemic racism but the people who can't get their house in order internally definitely don't have a leg to stand on in terms of, you know, sort of positing anything about the outside world. And then the second would be, I do think there's a lot that companies can do um, either to support organizations doing the work um, or to make sure that their product and the way that it's delivered doesn't, you know, have all sorts of biases um, sort of uh, built into it. Um, but again, I would I, I kind of feel like there's a lot right now of Blackout Tuesday and, and public facing stuff. But for for most of us running businesses, I think um, the the number one place to make an impact is to start initially with making your own business a more welcoming, inclusive place and a more diverse place. One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, small and large. This is a this is a shift in the conversation. You know, some of my my guests and, and my black friends this week have expressed their feeling that this feels different and feels like we're, we're at a tipping point potentially in, in history. Um, you're uh, in an interracial marriage, your wife, Natalie um, Pepe, Pepillon, am I saying it correct? Papillon. Papillon. Uh, can you tell <laughs> that I've never learned to speak French in my life? <laughs> Papillon. Um, is black and she runs a, uh, a an organization that is uh, supportive of criminal justice reform. It's called the Equality Organization or the Equity Organization. Um, can you share a little bit more about her theory? I'm sure you've been having a lot of conversations on how to reduce police violence and how we can support the work that she's doing right now. Yes, I love that you asked this question. Um, she. Uh... So her organization, it's it's kind of quirky. Like we, um, neither of us are really like smoke pod or, or kind of are even like low level drug users in our personal life. But I think she feels very strongly. And, and over the years, like, you know, this is a lot of our dinner table conversations. I find she's made a really persuasive case that you obviously want police to be less violent and and to be more restrained in their in their encounters with civilians um, and in particular to not, you know, sort of, um, well, you get the point. But I think obviously the most impactful thing would be reducing the number of, of interactions, unnecessary interactions someone has with the police in the first place. And the reality is like a lot of that is driven by essentially broken windows policing. And I've been shocked, I mean, like she's educated me at this point, but I've been shocked by the percentage of um, interactions with the police um, that in some way you can trace them back to essentially 
a like a marijuana or low level drug charge. And then you get in the system and then it's parole violations and it's different sort of, you know, totally bland systemic things. And you just and then that's what drives a lot of this stuff. And, and really, if you look at like the names everyone knows at this point of people who where their encounters with police have ended in death, probably more than half of them, there was something related to they smelled marijuana smoke, they were out on parole from from something related to that. And the really like infuriating part is that it, that at this point in the U.S., um, it, it's basically fine to 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 do that if you're white. And all of the arrests and all of the sort of brunt of the system falls um, on on for the most part, you know, the black the, and brown the black community. community. So that's her, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was crazy. I just saw a statistic that said in New York, uh, you are uh, eight times more likely to be arrested uh, for drug for marijuana use if you're black. You are two times more likely to be a marijuana user in the state of New yeah. York if you're well, white. I mean, I don't want to. This is not my platform. Like, I don't. I would love. I would love if you had Natalie on, and and she could she could sort of really. But I think the part that's crazy to me is it's decriminalized in New York. So the, 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 the state and, and the city have said, this is a thing we don't intend to. And, and what happens with decriminalization is you basically put the option in the police's hands and they get to choose. And it's pretty clear who they choose to, to kind of enforce an outdated law against. I know. Uh, I mean, I, I hear you loud and clear when you say, you know, this is an education for you and, and I feel the same. And, and, and again, like I said, I, I contemplated for a hot minute canceling these interviews, but I said to myself that, you know, if we can impact Jamie, five people or a hundred people's lives and that they're becoming better educated and how to be part of the solution and having awareness, then we've, then we've done our part. I've always been a big believer in that, but I think that there's a lot of listening and educating that can happen. And you know, there's this notion that silence is violence. And so I do think that if we are at a tipping point, that means that there's going to be uh, impact for, for year, months, years, decades to come. And so silence right now doesn't if you're not speaking out it doesn't mean that you're not um, part of the solution because you could be volunteering you could be donating money to these causes that will absolutely appreciate the money and you could be watching documentaries reading books educating yourself right now so i do think that there are a lot of things that we can be doing um, to ensure that we're moving forward in a positive and, direction. and by the way my wife is funnier smarter more more charming than i am so if you ever want to have her on this, I will put I you would love in it. touch, but you'd be I great. Would, I would love it next month. Yes, 100%. Okay, so I'm going to shift the, thank you um, for, for being part of that conversation. And I'm going to shift the conversation a bit to co-working because this is the 2020 co-working edition. <laughs> Let's do that. Fair. So um, Jamie, is Industrious actively raising money now? And what's the landscape like in the conversation with investors? We're figuring that out. I think we, um, we're probably like in exactly <laughs> the okay position as a company where businesses is, is, is doing fine. And there's, you know, we, 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 there are businesses that are existentially threatened right now. Either they're very, they're very, they're very low on cash or there's been such an impact to their revenue that they're sitting here sort of under threat. Yeah. I feel very lucky that that's not us. On the other hand, cash is dear. So as opportunities come up, M&A opportunities, really good management contracts where like 
we would have to write a $2 million check, not a $600,000 check. Those types of things for the time being, probably as a business, we would have to be prudent and not do. And so if we do raise, it would probably be a moderate amount to be able to kind of like capitalize on the moment at hand. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're just trying to get our heads around if there's market appetite for that right now or not. Yes, 100%. You know what, I just realized I want to bring up something here to make sure I ask you a question. Bear with me. Um, next question. Um, you, uh, and by the way, that question comes uh, with the commentary that you know, you've raised over $220 million at this point. And as mentioned at the top of the call, you have 45 cities with locations, uh, uh, 90 plus locations over eight years. Congratulations to you for that success again. Um, this week on LinkedIn, you posted an open letter to your team discussing work from this work from anywhere concept. Uh, the work from any, anywhere concept has four components, a home office, no commute, satellite offices, a headquarters, and also a workplace management app. There's a project that you uh, shared with us uh, called Luminous, which, by the way, at Primary, our front desk associates are called Luminaries, so I love really? that name. Stamp of approval. Yes, love the project called Luminous. Yeah, you're bringing light, bringing light into the world. Big part of my personal mission. Um, so the project's called Luminous, and it's Industrious's next iteration of the workplace, um, where you have hundreds of individual workspaces, focus rooms, et cetera. Um, do you see Industrious taking exponentially more smaller spaces in suburban markets to accommodate a larger audience? Or how do you think that you're going to be able to handle the geographical needs, you know, with the, the spread out needs of employees and companies? We started our expansion to the suburbs maybe two years ago. I wish we had started four years ago. But yeah, I think a lot of the, um, you know what, it's actually a lot of the, the deals that we were signing right now mm -hmm were in the suburbs already because we were seeing a lot of success there and that's where a lot of action was. So again, I think we got a little lucky on that front, but yeah, I think we will expand more in the suburbs. I mean, I'm a city person. I don't plan to leave the city, but I do think um, this kind of city is campus or metro area is campus where you have locations and on days where you don't feel like getting on the path train, you have a you know more local no commute office to work from and the one day a week, your whole team wants to meet at HQ, you can do that too. Um, I do think that's not a passing trend. I think that's a little different than everybody's going to work out of their living room for the next two years. But I think that, and really at its heart, giving employees choice and putting the power back in employees' hands to say, where do you want to be today? Where are you going to get your, your best work done? I, I think that will start with the Googles and Twitters of the world, but as many things in the workplace world tend to work, um, it will eventually spread to the Bank of Americas and Exxon's and the 20-person PR firms as well. Yeah, well, see, and so speaking of that, a lot of these major corporations are issuing their statements about work from home, uh, employees staying at home until 2021. Can you tell us a little bit more about the nature of your conversations that your sales team or you are having with some of your enterprise and corporate-level clients? Um, it's like, it's a lot of exactly that. Hey, we're trying to figure either one, we were going to open a 150 person office in Minneapolis. Now it's going to be 110, unfortunately, but we need something ready to go and sort of just in time, et cetera. And then a lot of companies saying, 
what would I need to do to unlock a work from anywhere program? And sometimes they use that exact language. And sometimes they say, what would I do to give my employees more choices? Or what would I do to keep my employees from having to get on the T every morning? But it's all kind of, it's all flowing to the same river, which is how do I give my employees more, um, more options and in particular, more local options of where to work, or they went home to Portland or Tampa and they're loving it there and they're not coming back to San Francisco. And so how do I set them up to stay and be able to do work in those places? Yeah, hundred um, percent. Can you share a little bit about how some of the landlords, you know, I'm, you, you know, you've been very open, as I said, at the top of the interview, also you've really pioneered uh, the movement of, of co-working operators into the, um, uh, landlord uh, or management deal structure, pulling away from the traditional landlord tenant lease structure. How have landlords helped or hindered you during the time of Corona? Um, yeah, that's the question. I, to me, uh, this has kind of validated that, that shift. I think the landlord, you know, so our first 50 units were leased and then everything it's now been two years, everything we did since then was managed. Yeah. In the managed units, you sit down together and you're like, what do we do? What, you know, do we close? Do we open? What does it look like to, to you know, when do we start giving people access? And in the leased units, it's much more arm's length. And so I think it's been fine on both fronts, but it's been a lot better with our managed units. And it's been a reminder to me or, or sort of a validator of why it's better to approach this on, you know, from a place of partnership. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I was interviewed by BizNow a couple of weeks ago and I said, you know, I, I think that for sure 24 months from now, we're going to be thriving in the co-working industry. But I do think the next six to 18 months are going to be difficult in particular for mom and pops operators, and, you know, pending, like you said, operating capital on hand, pending the underlying uh, terms of the lease that was in place with the landlord and then pending the landlord's interest in, in working out a deal ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's well, right. Well, so, you know, this is a bonus question. Any, uh, any suggestions for the smaller operators? You know, I, I, you strike me as someone, always you've struck me as someone who really leads with kindness and with heart, Jamie. And I, I think you and Justin are similar that way. And, and I, I, I've always liked to function from the space in particular in New York City, which is, you know, where I've been based the last 20 years. I've said, you know, there's more than enough business for all of us out there. And my, coming from the Danny Meyer um, School of Hospitality, I worked with him for three years. You know, my, my goal has always been to sort of head down, execute at a high level and ensure that our, our customers are, are very happy with the hospitality focused experience. So is there any advice that you have for, for smaller operators right now who may be in difficult uh, partnerships with landlords under these traditional leases? Uh, I think transparency is almost always wins. So I think a lot of landlords sometimes um, there's an assumption and, and there are bad faith actors. I mean, there are, there are people who, who tell the landlord, I'm so sorry. I'm we're, 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 you got to give me big discounts cause we're in big trouble. Um, and it's a little phony or it's, it's a negotiating position. So, um, I think if people are comfortable really saying, here's exactly, here's what the numbers look like. Here's the impact on my revenue. And it doesn't mean they're automatically going to become open-hearted, generous, flexible if they're not. But right. I think that that's a helpful thing to lead, to lead with. Um, and then I think second would be, um, to, to, to revisit the value prop to say, 
you know, sometimes people retrench in moments of chaos and say, well, this is what we do and everyone's going to want this more than ever. And I think to be a little bit to kind of say, okay, what, what do we have to offer in this moment in time? And what, if someone does decide to stay or join, why are they joining now? And how might that be different than before? Um, I think the people who, who step back a little and make an affirmative proactive definition of what they have to offer in the world will do better than people who just try to reaffirm everything that existed pre-COVID. Mm, yes, great advice. Thank you for that. Um, what do you think some of your strengths as a leader have been that have risen to the surface over the last three months? It's, it's no doubt a few leaders that I've connected with have said it's a challenging time to be a leader. I think I used to run a nonprofit and I'm not a very competitive person. And so I think, you know, that that has its advantages and disadvantages. And I think sometimes I felt as a CEO, like I don't have that killer instinct and have left opportunities on the table that that might have otherwise been available to us. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really been helpful at this moment, you know, because you have partners where you kind of did right by them. So they they show up for you. You have employees who feel like instead of leading with like how is this company trying to screw me probably lead with like okay i'm going to assume they're kind of coming at this from from the right place and so i think what historically has been maybe one of my faults is again lacking that little bit of extra just like we're gonna win we're you know we're um probably at this moment in time has turned out to be a little advantage yeah um, what, so uh, it is a very interesting time to be alive. Um, many of us are still on lockdown, certainly in New York City, you know, hasn't been released from the shelter. Uh, what have you been doing every day to stay sane? You're in New York. <laughs> um, I set up a little like bike desk. Uh, and then, Biking while you were I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Really? But mostly, yeah, I, I got lucky. Like I just got married. So... For us, it's been a terrible time for the world. And I think it's hard, like, you know, I, I think, and everything that happened in the last few weeks has compounded that. But within our own doors, to spend the first few months of your marriage Honeymoon. cooking dinner every single night. And mm -hmm. I think in certain ways that's been helpful because we were such busy people. You know, we could have spent the first three months of our marriage seeing each other three nights a week and I'm going out to drinks with this landlord and I'm, and, and, and I feel like a little bit excited about the fact that I suspect it's, it's like helped put us on particularly firm footing for, for the coming years. hundred percent agreed. Um, if you could go back in time to a year ago today, is there something that you'd tell yourself or do differently? Um, I mean, I would have done more in the suburbs, but I think, um, uh, yeah, probably that. And probably, um, I would have done everything. We, we let go. We, we, we had to fire 20% of the company and that was for sure the worst day, you know, of in the company's history for me as a professional, of course. I, I think we were always lean. So it's not that we were a bloated company or, but if I had known everything that was going to happen, I think we would have done everything we could do to avoid, um, doing that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry that you had to go through that experience. Uh, and and may may the ramp up be swift and may you bring a lot of those people back. You know, I think actually next week or the week after the last of our furloughed employees come back, which will awesome. be a day for real celebration. Great. Good, good, good. Um, where are you turning for inspiration right now? 
my wife. I was going to say, other um, than your inspirational <laughs> wife, I can hear Natalie's quite inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like I used to like I used to work in 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 education in the nonprofit sector, and I think um, I love industrious, um, and I think we are able to do a lot of good in the world. But I'm inspired by my friends who wake up every day and their entire day is devoted to social justice or to making an impact. And I'm at a particular moment in my career where I'm sure I will go back to that and probably go back and forth between that and and a more more vanilla for-profit companies, but for the time being, I'm taking a lot of inspiration from my friends and trying to do everything I can to support my friends who are doing that. I love it. Awesome. You ready for the lightning round? Sure. What is the lightning round? We got 10 quick answers. Ready? Uh, sure. <laughs> Number one, rename the coronavirus. I, I like the name COVID-19. I, I like that it's very scientific and therefore you get away from this illness as metaphor, it's a cancer or whatever, and really focus on hope. I mean, this hasn't been happening that much, but the science behind it. Yes, um, agreed. Okay, best advice you've ever gotten? Um, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Oh, I love that one. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Night owl. How late are you going to bed? Always between one fifteen and two. And what time do you wake up? Eight. <laughs> nice, me too. We're, we're in the same rhythm. Uh, favorite <laughs> word, favorite word. Oh my God. Empathy, probably. Oh, I love it. Uh, your favorite business book or podcast? Um, I, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, there's actually, this is going to sound insane, but there's a book about love from the 50s, I think, called The Art of Loving or The Art of Love. And okay. um, it's about how to be in a successful romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. But as crazy as this sounds, a lot of the stuff in it, I think I've found over the years to be, um, to, to apply to, to, to business. And, and if we had more time, I would explain why, but suffice to say. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, what is what, your favorite travel destination? My dad lives in like Northern Italy, um, like an hour from Milan. So, Ugh. I mean, first I get to see my dad and, you know, that's there. a nice combo. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, your, what's your, I feel like I, I see industrious team getting together and having a lot of fun uh, yeah. behind the scenes. So I, I have a feeling karaoke has maybe been involved at some point. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? Jamie? Um, uh, that's so funny you say that. I don't have a go-to, maybe like Take Me Home Country Roads, but Natalie and I were saying last night that we did a one-on-one -on -one karaoke party last weekend, and it was actually more fun than I thought, so we'll probably do it this weekend. And the song we were both like, you know what would be fun to sing is um, the Carrie Underwood song before he cheats about like busting up the person's car, basically. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea what the song oh, is. Okay. Carrie Underwood is she's got a country singer kind of. Yes. Yeah, you yeah. guys listen to some country music. Yeah. All right, I love it. Um, city where you want to open an industrious location where you have it already. I mean, Mil Milan is probably the the one just because of the the nexus. My dad, but honestly, I'm we're, Justin and I are from the suburbs of Detroit, and to me, the fact that we're in actually I think 51 U.S. cities and still aren't in Detroit is like embarrassing. And my mm. parents and my siblings and everyone gets honest about it all the time. 
All right, so Detroit. Uh, hottest topic during the time of Corona, uh, Jamie, you know, is toilet paper. And so I want to know, do you pull over or do you pull under? I'm so type B, I couldn't even tell you. Every time I read an article about that, I'm like, what do we do? We're both very messy. I'm sure it's like different every time. <laughs> Look at that. That's what Danny Meyer and Miguel McKelvey both were like, over, obviously. Oh. <laughs> I yeah. like it. This is what I find. No some people have said on the side. Some people have said, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. That's probably the honest answer. It's, you know, the, the melting pot beauty of the world. Um, okay, last question. 2020 or 2021? Uh, 20, I think if a lot of people weren't dying of a pandemic, I would say 2020. I think that this is, yeah. there's going to be a lot of structural changes that come from this year that, that are not true of, you know, you go decades and decades without that. And I think a lot of them will hopefully be in the right direction. Um, but I think because, because of so many people, you know, because of the death involved with the pandemic, I think the dream is that there's a vaccine this ends and therefore I'd say 2021. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Jamie, thank you so much for agreeing to being a part of this. Of course. Uh, I hope you, I told you you'd end with a little bit of a smile. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad mission accomplished. <laughs> um, thank thank you. you to all of our listeners, everyone who tuned in. I wish you incredible, tremendous, uh, you know, continued success with Industrious and congrats again on, on, on the last eight years of obviously lots of hard work and, and lots of empathy and heart. Um, at, <laughs> at, and, uh, and there you go. So thanks and have a great weekend, thanks. Jamie. Bye, everyone.